Hello, I'm Dr. Don Reynolds, professor and poultry veterinarian at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and welcome to the Big Red Biosecurity Program for Poultry. This is Biosecurity Training Module 2, Developing and Evaluating a Biosecurity Plan. Today we will define what a biosecurity program and what a biosecurity plan is, why it is important, and the purpose of a biosecurity program. We'll also discuss how to develop, assess, and evaluate a biosecurity program. So why is a biosecurity program important? Well, we are protecting our birds from diseases. Uh, biosecurity is the first line of defense in protecting our birds from diseases. There are preventive measures, prevent exposures, prevent infections. That decreases the spread of diseases, and in turn, the losses due to mortality and morbidity, uh, and economic losses from these diseases, and public health concerns. There are certain diseases that are transmissible to humans, and it decreases um, those concerns as well. It also decreases the use of treatments and preventatives, such as antibiotics. The less we use antibiotics, the more we decrease antimicrobial resistance. In some instances, um, it decreases the use of vaccines, which decreases resistant strains. It also increases the health and well-being of our flocks and, typically, profitability. Biosecurity programs may be required by some government programs, such as the USDA National Poultry Improvement Plan. The ultimate objective or purpose of biosecurity or a biosecurity program is to reduce risk. Again, to reduce risk. We can never totally eliminate the risk of disease. However, we can substantially mitigate the risk by identifying risk factors and planning accordingly. So what is a biosecurity program? A program, a biosecurity program, are the practices and procedures you are currently using to reduce risk of disease. So, what is a biosecurity plan? A plan are the practices and procedures that you will implement in, if circumstances change. So biosecurity programs can and should contain biosecurity plans. So we typically implement plans into our programs when something changes. For instance, the threat level or perhaps an assessment. Um, there may be other things as well. So let's talk about developing and evaluating a biosecurity program and plan. To begin with, you need to define or determine your objectives and goals. What problems are you trying to solve? What are you attempting to do? What do you want to accomplish in your biosecurity program? And the plan is what if scenarios. What if, for instance, a low incidence but high impact disease occurs, such as high pathogenic avian influenza? What if your biosecurity index or score goes over or under a certain benchmark? These are what-if scenarios, and you need to determine when and how the biosecurity plan becomes implemented into a biosecurity program. These are the first steps to be taken and should provide you the guidance in establishing your goals and guiding principles. Your goals, setting the goals. Your goals should be clear, concise, and unambiguous. For instance, we want to protect against salmonella introduction into our flock. 
We want to decrease the mortality from a specific disease. We want to raise antibody-free poultry, or we want to increase the awareness of our biosecurity program. Your goals should be attainable, should be able to track the progress of your goals with benchmarks. So for example, within one year, we want to decrease our antibiotic usage by 50%, within two years by 75%. Your goals should be reasonable in number and they should represent your most urgent needs. Now, your goals may change according to threat level. So example, an outbreak of a highly infectious, high-impact disease in their surroundings. So a good example would be high pathogenic avian influenza or exotic Newcastle disease. So we have different threat levels that correspond to different biosecurity levels representing the current situation. So for instance, maybe you have a two-tier, normal and emergency or urgent, or maybe there's a three-tier, low, medium, high, or level one, level two, level three. We often hear about uh, different security levels when we're, we're talking about the transportation um, safety uh, in airports. We're at a yellow alert or a red alert. The parameters of how different levels are designated and achieved should be delineated and written. So for an example, we'll go to level two from level one, our normal operating procedures, We'll go to level two if avian influenza is present in the United States. We'll go to level three if high path avian influenza is within 50 miles of our operation. The goals, your standard operating procedures, et cetera, that is your biosecurity program, should be altered to accommodate the change. So let's go over an example again. We have known avian influenza in the United States. We're going from level one to level two. What's the standard operating procedure that might change? We might say we are going to make sure that we don't receive any poultry or poultry products from that area during this period. Maybe level three, where high path is within 50 miles. Maybe a standard operating procedure would be all vehicular traffic going in and out will be cleaned and disinfected. Assessment. Assessment is very important. Assessment is a quantitative method for measuring or estimating the degree to which biosecurity risk is increased or decreased when changes to biosecurity programs and or conditions are made or occur. Put in another way, in very common language, we want to determine what's working and what's not. We oftentimes use an index or a score but we must define the meaning or of increasing or decreasing that index score. And we must communicate those results to everyone. So let me give you an example of increasing or decreasing scores. Two games, let's say basketball. In basketball, the goal is to score as many points as you can. And so the higher score wins. In golf, I'm not a golfer, it's my understanding that the the objective is lower scores. So a lower score is superior to a higher score, but we must define what we're working with in the same way with this assessment. If we use an index or score, we can use any type of formula that we want, but we must know what it means and communicate those. We may be the basis for changing the threat level on an assessment. 
If a change in the index or score results in no risk reduction or, a, or action, then you must ask yourself, are we using the right formula? Are we instituting the right changes? Are we wasting our time and resources? And how can we change things to make it more meaningful or more precisely to reduce the risk? Now, getting back to assessment, how to assess? What's a method for formulating an index or score? Well, we ask questions and we have questionnaires. So here's an example. What protocols are currently being used for visitors to enter a production facility? And here are four answers. A, sign in, shower in with clean clothing provided. B, sign in, disposable shoot and boot covers are provided and disposable coveralls are required. C, boots and coveralls required, boots to be washed and designated boot wash before entry. D, no protocols, just everyone's welcome. Well, the answers should be clear and concise and not overlapping, like we had with A, B, C, D above. They should be significantly different to represent significant scoring differences. And when we assign scores, the scores must be significantly different. So typically we recommend either an um, exponential versus an arithmetic way to assigning scores. So let's use the example above. Answer A, which is highly, highly desirable in a biosecurity situation. Sign in, shower in, provide clean clothing. That might be assigned a score of 1,000 or eight instead of just three. Answer B, again, a, a good biosecure way, sign in, disposable sheet covers, et cetera. That might be less than A, but more than C and D, so it might be assigned 100 or perhaps four instead of just two. Answer C, 10 or two instead of one, and answer D, one instead of just zero. So instead of just having a scale of zero, one, two, and three, we have a scale of one, 10, 100, and 1,000. So in essence, we're saying that answer A is a thousand times better than answer D with no protocols. How do we come up with these questions? How do we uh, um, ask the right questions? Well, basically we can use experimental evidence. For example, conditions for the pathogen survival may relate to the selection of a disinfectant or handling mortalities or building downtime or routes of modes of disease transmission. So you must know how these pathogens are <clears throat> transmitted and under what conditions. Might be the availability of vaccines and their effectiveness. Data may not be available for every question, so you may have to extrapolate from other sources, but be cautious, don't over extrapolate. There might be retrospective analysis. In other words, what works and what doesn't just from our experiences. There's much written about a lot of previous disease and disease occurrences. And I guess when all else fails, you can use the expert recommendations. So you can either from an individual or a group of individual, you can get their common opinions and, and advice and use that for to um, your assessment questions. Now, you can also use quantitative data. So for example, 
we want to decrease the number of vehicles that come into the facility. So you can just count the number of vehicles, how long do they stay, et cetera. So there, there may be a method for compliance and how effective. For instance, a sign-in sheet. Are people using that? There might be other ways, electronic entry system with access cards, or perhaps video cameras. You want to make sure that your assessment and your scores can be used as a benchmark over time for the same facility. So from year to year or month to month, we're gonna set up our questionnaire, we're gonna give our facility a score, and we're gonna come back in six months, do the same thing, and see if we have improved ourselves. So it's a way to determine if progress is being made and changes are needed. They can also be used to compare facilities within operations or between operations. So here's a barn within our complex. How are we doing with that? We ask certain questions. We compare it to another barn or between farms. A farm over here may have some a set of questions and we want to compare it to this farm because this farm may be doing better or worse in certain areas. So it may more accurately determine or identify crucial risk factors, may determine what works and what doesn't, it can make changes to our biosecurity programs, and we can be used for future planning. We can also use this to establish our best management practices, our standard operating procedures, etc., and can be used to measure compliance and training. So let's start, let's begin talking about developing and evaluating a biosecurity program and plan. The very first thing, who's in charge? Who is responsible for the biosecurity program or plan? And remember that, quote, the chain is only as strong as the weakest link. So does this person that's in charge have a designated title? Are they called the biosecurity coordinator, the director of biosecurity, the biosecurity officer? Is the person and or the company or entity that's implementing the biosecurity program actually serious and engaged about the program? Or was the position just kind of by default, the newest person on the job gets the job? Who and how are the decisions made? Who has the authority to implement and or change things such as the standard operating procedures, the rules, et cetera? Is there a budget or resources that is available and are these resources adequate? Who's tasked with training and education? Who's responsible for and how is compliance accomplished? All very important. And it gets down to who's in charge or responsible for the biosecurity program. For an infectious disease pathogen, we must determine basic information about the pathogen. So you must know what you're dealing with. So for example, what type of microbe are you dealing with to accomplish your goal? Is it a virus, is it a bacteria, is it a parasite? What's the survivability in the environment? That may relate to the best ways to inactivate, kill or disinfect the, the premise. What about the transmission routes? What about vectors and fomites? What's the likely source of this pathogen? Are vaccines, drugs, chemicals, are they available and are they efficacious? And will they work for protecting the host? Then there are non-infectious diseases. We must determine the cause, must determine the factors associated with these non-infectious causes. Next steps, 
disease transmission, review all the transmission routes in regards to pathogens. Hopefully you've seen nodule one and you'll remember this, very important, our modes or routes of disease transmission. Again, direct contact, aerosol, indirect contact, especially the fomites, the inanimate objects, oral, foodborne, fecal oral, our vectors, our animate objects, our, I'm sorry, our animate uh, transmitters of disease, such as mosquitoes, flies, et cetera, and we have mechanical and biological vectors. We have to look for other factors with regards to the biosecurity components. So what could we do or what could we change to alter, add to, to reduce the risk? So we want to make sure we can establish our lines of separation. We want to make sure we can delineate our perimeter buffer areas. And we want to make sure that we can have good transition areas from going from our perimeter buffer area inside our facility. So let's look again at the big picture. Is there anything that we can do in terms of conceptual biosecurity to decrease the reduce, decrease disease or reduce our risk factors? For instance, the location of the facilities. Is there anything that we can do that would alter the traffic patterns or the amount of traffic? Perhaps we could place a gate or a roadway or an entryway someplace different. What about the structural component. What about our equipment, our buildings, materials, etc.? For instance, maybe we change a building entryway. Maybe we add a chlorinator or a medicator to our water system. What about procedural? And this is where most of the changes will be made, how we operate. Perhaps we add signage, telling people and reminding people to do certain things. Perhaps we develop our standard operating procedures for a given task. And certainly education and training specific to a goal is very important so that people understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. Management practices such as signage. Good and appropriate signage is typically our most underutilized tool. Again, underutilized tool. People that enter a premise should not have to guess as to what or what not to do. They should be guided. So a few guiding principles on signage. The purpose is to communicate with people. So use a common sense approach. Remember, not all people speak English or understand English. Multiple languages should be considered. Don't assume that all people can read and understand English. Consider languages or using languages known to be in your area. Iconic symbols and pictures should be considered. Don't, again, don't assume that all people can understand English. Consideration of where signs are placed is very important. Consider your people or the foot traffic. Uh, it usually doesn't work if you put it behind the door, for instance. Consider vehicular traffic. It's no good if a sign is obscured by a tree or vegetation. The message should be clear, informative, brief and instantly convey the message in a glance and it should be friendly and non-threatening. Here are some examples of what I consider good signage. Here you can see no unauthorized photography or video, videography. It actually has a picture of a camera with the stop sign over it. Um, 
unfortunately, maybe some people, uh, unless you're a certain age, don't recognize that this is a camera. Maybe we need to have that as a smartphone. But I think you get the idea. This is an iconic image. Here's a great sign. Farm visitor policy has a truck here, and it has a right here very briefly about what all visitors should do. The same thing in another language. Here's another honk has an icon here showing it. Here's a wonderful sign here about how to wash your hands. Even if you don't read or understand English, you can understand just by the pictures of what's going on here. Here are some examples that I would say of bad signage. This one here, too wordy and intimidating. I'll read this to you. Please do not enter the dangerous area beyond this gate. You quite possibly will get hurt, then you will sue, then a protracted court battle will ensue, exhausting your financial resources, and you will lose because this sign that warned you will be exhibit number one. Well, first of all, nobody's gonna sit there and read all of that. Um, perhaps people can't even understand it. They don't know what court battle is and all these things. Secondly, it's not friendly. It's kind of intimidating. Certainly this one, notice private property. If you can read this, you are, in with, you are within range. Some people might think this is humorous or comical, but this is intimidating and it's unfriendly. And we want to be good stewards, good neighbors, and good citizens uh, in the poultry industry. Okay. Again, specific factors to be considered in relation to biosecurity components. The physical distance of facilities from risk factors, that is your location. So this might be used in an index or in a scoring situation. So if you're 200 yards from a road, this might be considered low risk. Or if you're less than 50 yards, it might be high risk. Incoming animals. New animals that are introduced into the site, are there prophylactic, that means preventative measures. For instance, are they vaccinated? Have they received medication, etc.? Do you put them under quarantine? What about people? People are a big, big factor in our biosecurity programs. Communications, meetings, signs, information technology, etc. Communications are huge and biosecurity. Okay, let's talk specifically about our company personnel. Do our company personnel own animals or do they encounter animals? This you may have to restrict ownership. That's quite common in many companies or association with certain types of animals. Now remember, it's not just them having animals. It might be others, their child, their nephew, their relation, their friends, their neighbors may have activities for instance, in poultry shows, or 4-H projects, or county fairs, etc. <clears throat> what about consideration of your company personnel's employee health? Do they have situations that might be injurious to them or to the, the poultry themselves? What about the entry systems? Are you furnishing them with the right personal protective equipment? Are they being trained and educated in terms of biosecurity? Visitors, clients, others. Here's a kind of rule of thumb I like to use. If someone were to inadvertently and accidentally wander onto your premise, are they directed? Let's say someone gets stopped on the road and runs out of gas and they're looking for gas or a gas station. 
and they happen to wander into your poultry house while you're servicing the, the birds and say, where can I get some gas? Obviously, they should never be there. They're not malicious in trying to get there, but perhaps they don't, they don't know. They're just looking for help. But if there were good signage, if there were access systems in terms of login procedures, locks, et cetera, they would never get there in the first place. So put yourselves in the place of someone that might wander into your facility. Are there restricted areas? Are there entry systems? Are, is there signage? Service personnel, another uh, quite common things that are overlooked. If we have a broken pipe in our facility, well, we need to get a, a plumber there. Well, the plumber represents a biosecurity threat, just like any other visitor or person. We must make sure that personnel, such as security personnel, our maintenance personnel, veterinarians, et cetera, take the proper precautions and abide by our biosecurity program. What about equipment and tools? Common equipment that is owned or shared by others are common transmitters of disease. So, Examples, a storage area, a refrigerator, multi-users, people putting drugs in to, to make sure they're um, uh, refrigerated. So you need to make sure that you maintain documentation, who and how it's maintained, how it's decontaminated, what's in there, how it's cleaned, etc. <clears throat> Equipment that is leased or part of a service company that goes from business to business or farm to farm you need to know what procedures are being performed to decontaminate, disinfect, et cetera, et cetera. Vehicles, the personal vehicle for farm or, or complex personnel, are there parking areas? Are there procedures to decontaminate, wash these? What about your service vehicles, such as feed trucks, veterinary trucks, et cetera? Again, are there parking areas? Are there decontamination or washing procedures? What about animal risk factors other than humans? Rodent controls, birds and wild animals, insects, bugs, domestic animals, pets, food animals, etc. What about waste and your mortality? How's cleaning and disinfection handled? What about your storage of feed, food, bedding, medication, vaccines, other things? And then auditing. Who does it? Is it within the company or operation? Is it a self-audit? Is it a third party? Are you participating in the NPIP program and an official OSA, that's an official state agent or agency does the auditing? <coughs> or perhaps there's some other entity that does the auditing. What type of audit? Is it a tabletop type of questionnaire audit versus an on-site visit and evaluation? When and how often are audits performed? An annual review of a biosecurity officer and coordinator should, be, should take place. The MPIP audit will be required every two years. These are the 14 MPIP biosecurity principles. Many of the things that we mentioned um, in, this, in this module, such as um, wild birds, rodents, insects, equipment, vehicles, mortality, disposal, et cetera, et cetera, are part of these principles, and we will be reviewing them more in-depthly in subsequent modules. This is the end of module two.